Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 172 of the show, and it's Wednesday, the 8th of November, 2023, as I record this. Now, if all went well with tomorrow's flights, I'm in Finland, so I hope to see you on tomorrow's seminar in Espoo, that's at West End in Puisto School, 12pm to 5pm, Saturday the 11th of November. You can find more details on Gladiolus School of Arms, um, which is the, the club run by my previous guest, Auri Posso, who you may recall from episode 130. So, with any luck, I will see you tomorrow. Today is the last day to get 40% off my new course with Jessica Finley, medieval German longsword, the Hauptstücke of Johannes Lichtenauer. I've put a easy link thing, guywindsor.net forward slash German longsword, because I figured that was easier to spell than Hauptstücke, at least for most of my listeners. The launch window with 40% off closes at about midnight tonight. Uh, that's Friday, the 10th of November. Um, so I will change that link to redirect just to the regular course sales page if you happen to miss the window. I probably should have done a special episode on German Longsword to boost the course, but I don't like messing with my podcast schedule and I needed to launch it last week for various reasons. And a special shout out this week to new patron Joe Wicks, who tells me he literally discovered historical martial arts through this podcast, which I find surprising. I thought it would only be sort of pre-existing sword people who found the show, but apparently not. So welcome, Joe. Now, without further ado, on with the show. I'm here today with Jason Kingsley, OBE, co-founder and CEO of the games company Rebellion Developments, which also owns 2000 AD, and the man behind the YouTube channel Modern History TV, starring Warlord, which goes into depth and detail regarding many aspects of medieval life, most notably combat and horsemanship, but also aspects of daily life. He is also the author of a new book, Leading the Rebellion. Of course, his main claim to fame, as he will surely admit, is his first appearance on this show back in episode 81. So without further ado, Jason, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me again. Uh, it's nice to see you. Um, of course, first question, it's not actually on the list, but how's Warlord? Warlord is fine, actually. Uh, like like us all, he, he ages uh, um, mm -hmm. and is getting a bit creaky. So I have to be I have to be a little bit more careful with him and me. My knees are going a little bit, and when it when it comes to <laughs> to doing okay. kind of lunges and uh, an activity, but he's very happy. He's in the field at the moment. Um, he's having probably a bit too much grass at the moment because of the rain we've had. The grass has grown right. like topsy, and um, and he's very happy. He's probably a little <laughs> little tubby. Right. So basically a, a grassy field for a horse is like a, a candy store for us. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's it's weird because in the spring, obviously, there's a flush of growth. Um, and in the uh, autumn, there's a flush of growth. And usually the summer, because it's so dry, you don't get so much grass. So they're kind of munching away. And, and horses are bulk feeders as well. So they just need a lot of volume. But if the grass is too juicy... It can, right. it can give them it can give them digestive problems and and um, really? kind of a thing called laminitis yeah which is a it's a horse form of diabetes um which is very odd wow. nobody really knows the details behind it and it, it makes them have sore feet huh so hmm. so juicy grass is yes. not so great for horses because it gives them a kind of diabetes which gives them a kind of sore feet 
That's right. Yeah, their hooves. Their hooves huh. get really sore and they end up lying down a lot more. So they're sometimes in in a lot of discomfort um, with too much food. Huh. So you you have to manage them. They're, they're they're daft creatures. Sometimes they they can eat themselves into pain. Mind you, so can we. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, we we put men on the moon and we can still eat ourselves into pain. <laughs> <laughs> just just put me with an unlimited supply of sushi and you can just watch me do it <laughs> um, so uh, how are the castle developments coming along coming along nicely it's been a long build um uh, I, back in the day I, that i've had thousands of men working on a castle i've, I've got a handful so it's taking uh, an equivalent time it's taking years but um yes it's coming along nicely it's it's getting towards the end, I would say, and it's been six, seven, maybe even eight years um, okay. since I got so planning permission for it. For people who may not remember our conversation some time ago, um, you're converting an existing house to be a lot more castle-like. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. I, I, ca- oh. I call it a um, I call it a, a fortified manor house. That's the idea. So it's not okay. a, it's not a military castle, but it's a it's a fortified enclosure, uh, a courtyard with stables inside it, a gatehouse, uh, the house, and a, and a a small a modest tower. And it has crenellations, right? It does have crenellations. I am still trying to find out whether I need permission from the crown to crenellate. <laughs> I don't think the SAS would have too much trouble dealing with your fortified manor house. So I don't see why crenellations would cause a problem. No, no, but it's one of those things, isn't it? It makes me go slightly hot and cold thinking, is there a form I'm supposed to have filled in to request the uh, permission to, to crenellate? Or am I going to be <laughs> flung into the Tower of London in, in due course? Okay, but just think what the publicity would do for your book sales. <laughs> that's true. Yes, so, that's probably a good thing. Yes. You know, modern knight Jason Kingsley flung into the tower for building a castle. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> perfect publicity. Yeah, it's not so good for going for long rides in the countryside afterwards. So, yeah. No, true, true. I mean, particularly if they've shortened you by a foot. <laughs> yes, yes. Tower of London. What a what a what a historically awful place and wonderful, yeah. and, uh, you know, amazing, amazing place. Yeah, it it does strike me as kind of odd how a place where literally people were tortured and murdered Hmm. um, is now like a tourist attraction. Yes, and that ghoulish thing um, of this is where somebody's head was chopped off. Right. Uh, and and go and have a go and have a selfie next to it. It's a it's a weird one. I, I, I sometimes liken it to you know when you watch wildlife programs and there's you know, a lion grabs a zebra and starts eating it. Yeah. And and all the other all the other zebras have been running away and they turn around to watch. <laughs> one, of their, one of their mates being disemboweled alive by a lion and i just think that's revolting i don't really want to see that um uh, but people seem to want to they're attracted to the macabre i suppose yeah i, I think there's maybe a bit of that. i think maybe for zebras it's more like okay are there any more lions no that lion is clearly happy and not going anywhere so the immediate danger is past let's keep an so eye can- on that horrid lion so we can all relax. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. chill out now, dudes. It's all over. Yeah, Bob's, yeah, I, Bob's I dead. <laughs> Bob's dying. I don't, but that's yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have to run very fast. I just have to run faster than you. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, now, um, when we last talked, your best idea not acted on was writing the book. And I know you are relatively busy. Um, so, you know, not least four hours a day of looking after horses, in addition to running a company and all the other stuff. I assume you occasionally eat and sleep. Um, so as a busy person, how did you make the book happen? 
I did um I tried to write it in sort of small chunks um okay. and and when the muse took me so the structure of basing it on the chivalric code was quite useful because I kind of had a chapter on um you know gluttony a chapter on uh, sagacity a chapter on bravery and it, that that kind of kept me quite focused on there's a little bit to write this is like a small book to write on wisdom <laughs> right um, and how it applies um and I went through it and through it and through it. So you get, I think the key, well, for me, the key for writing is to get the first draft done, is to yeah. not worry too much about the first draft because once you've got the thing down on a piece of paper or digital file, in my case, you think, right, I've got to the end. Now it's dreadful. I've got to rework it. But the reworking right. somehow is a confidence thing. It's a, um, it then becomes an editorial job and you go, oh, that's work terrible. I'll rewrite that. Or there's a big section here that needs adding to. Or here's a little anecdote that I think might fit in, but didn't quite fit in there. It might fit in in another chapter. So it was quite, um, I, I would describe it as writing and cobbling things together as well and then rewriting and editing. So I, it, it's a, it was a very interactive process uh, right. for me. So you broke it up into small chunks and yep. the chivalric code gave you like the structure for those chunks. Yes. That is a, that's a very, I had the same thing with my advanced longsword book where I, I knew what the book should be and I knew what should be in it, but I didn't know what order it was going to be in. So I couldn't write it. And then one day it just hit me. We have a form called the syllabus form, like a kata sort of thing. I will just take each step of the form and each step of the form will be the chapter in the book and I'll just order it like the form and that's fine. I mean, later on, if you don't quite like the order, you can always reorder it. But it was just as soon as I had the, the structure, the book was written three weeks later. Yeah, well, which is exactly I didn't quite do it in three weeks, but um, that's, that's uh, yeah. I, I don't me. run a, I don't run a huge company with <laughs> hundreds of people working for me or any of that sort of stuff. So I mean, this it is was, my day yeah. job. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think um, I've tried to write fiction. I might have another go in due course as well. But um, one of the problems for me with writing fiction is I often start with a, with an idea, but I don't know where it's going. Right. And then I then I kind of fizzle out after a couple of weeks work on it thinking I, I actually don't know where they're going now and then I never right. I never revisit their their adventure I never come back to it. I never and I think maybe what I need to do is is almost my first port of call is to is to plot out you know the right. adventures start here they go to this village they then go to this castle they then go to this dungeon or whatever it might be in the broadest possible brushstrokes so that you actually have a map of the territory you're going to kind of cross uh, and then you can start filling it in and then you can start correcting it. But but sort of wandering the landscape, not knowing which direction you're going in. Yeah. <laughs> in in not, a metaphorical way. It's not, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I, I, several of my novelist friends um, start with the last chapter. So they, okay. write the final, they write the final scene. So they know what what the end point is. Like, I don't know, the hero kills the villain or the villain escapes or the villain kills the hero or or the mother is reunited with her child or whatever, right? Yep. And then they knowing where it's going and knowing where it's starting from, they can then put in the pieces in between. Right, right. It's interesting because I've always thought writing was a sort of stream of consciousness that you put down and writers were terribly <laughs> clever and it just sort of happened. But I think I think good books, uh, factual or, or fiction, are mostly constructed yeah, of course. Um, I, I think I think they have to be. I think um, this idea you can just randomly set off and writing. I'm sure there are a few authors that do that, but um, 
I feel I need the structure because I need to get back to, especially if there's an awkward, if there's an awkward section. So, for example, looking at the rules of chivalry for me and how it applies to modern, uh, you know, modern business and my own life. You know, issues were to do with chivalry was a masculine thing. It was a it was a male mm-hmm. thing. How does how does that apply to uh, non men? Uh, how does it apply to modern men in a different circumstances? Uh, there's an awful lot in the knightly code about um, well, in the Christian side of the knightly code about going and slaughtering foreigners. Right, know, they're um, not not good. Which is which is really bad, you know. And this is I I address that, you know. It's like these parts of it are not re- relevant for modern business uh, at all. But I, I try to sort of boil it down, uh, and some of it perhaps was a little more forced than 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 I wanted it to be. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm pleased. I'm pleased with the results. People people who read it seem to think it's quite good, and that's always nice. I've got a I've got a few mates and colleagues who are okay at telling me something's garbage which right. is always nice they're nice to have a few fools in the court if yeah you like, and, can... and my, my feeling is that um the opinions that actually matter are the opinions of the people who have bought the book mm. right yes yeah. so if if the people you wrote it for buy it and like it then it's good if somebody then gives it a one-star review it's because You've sold a book to the wrong person. That's a marketing problem, not a writing problem. That's an but, interesting perspective, yeah. But if one of your, you know, one of your target readers emails you and says, "Actually, guy, what you what you say here about this, that, and the other, you know, is either wrong, or you need to flesh that out a bit. I didn't understand it, or you're missing a whole section that the book really does need on this," then I pay attention to that. So what I tend to do. I mean, you ran a Kickstarter for this, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah. I, I ran a Kickstarter. Uh, I was already on the way with the book, but I thought my audience on Modern History TV had, had all said they wanted signed versions. And I just thought, you know yeah. what? There's a great opportunity here to do special editions for yeah. people if they want them and see what happens because I'm already going to do the, the book. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I have a publishing company, so it's not that hard for me to sell, <laughs> yeah, to, exactly. to sell the rights to the publishing company. Hey, you're making this happen. Um, and that's always a little nerve wracking because as the boss, you know that you can get things through that might not be good enough quality as well. Yeah. And I always think that's um, a good and a bad thing. It's a double-edged sword in the traditional sense of the word. It's, um, it cuts both ways. And, and I didn't want to put something out that wouldn't have hit the bar had I not been in a position of power and luckily right. they all thought it my editors it thought it was a it was good it was a good book yeah and I think it was genuine it wasn't like oh we better say it's good because it's the boss you know it was yeah. it was no they actually enjoyed it so so I'm I'm quite proud of that achievement um it is difficult sometimes when you have a a, a position a position of authority to to get genuine feedback about right. something it's a little bit like comments on on the youtube channel or or whatever it might be you know i i absolutely love getting positive constructive comment from people that know what they're talking about right there are those comments from people that haven't got a clue what they're talking about and, <laughs> yeah. and they're sometimes amusing or you, know, you can dismiss them uh, or sometimes they're just abusive uh and i think as creators you and i both we we have to sort of that comes with the territory. We, Absolutely. we we get that kind of thing. But fi- yeah, finding the right feedback is super hard. And so mm. what I've tended to do is I, pr- I allow pre-orders of like a special edition hardback or something. So the people who are very much the target market will buy the pre-order. I then give them 
the current draft, which is as close to finish as I can make it by myself, and ask them what else they would like to see in their book or how yeah. anything they that doesn't work for them in their book. And the thing is, they have just paid me for it, That's right? Yeah. And so they have the rights of a customer, right? And that, I think, just sort of, it flips the power thing on its head because now mm-hmm. they are, they look, I've paid you for this thing and it's broken. You need to fix it. Right. And they don't come across like that, but it's, they have, but that's, that's the sort of the underlying mechanics have now changed. And so they are entirely free to say, well, actually the book needs this. Mm-hmm. Right. And that I find that super helpful because that is my target readers who are, who have paid for the book, who are telling me things that how it could be improved before it goes out to the wider mm-hmm. world. So that, then when somebody, yeah. So then when somebody gives me a bad review, I know it's a marketing problem. I've sold a book to the wrong person. Mm. And that, that does happen occasionally. And then I go in and I fix the blurb or adjust, you know, mm. the targeting or whatever. And hopefully that problem goes away. Mm. That is interesting. I think genuine, genuinely, though, if you make stuff, you're not going to be able to please all the people. No, of course time. Not. Some people will just have a bad day or don't like the way you speak or the voice you use in your writing <laughs> or whatever. Uh, or, or, you know, there's, there's, there's a million different reasons why human beings can just not mesh properly with something that's being creative i mean personally if i if i watch something and i don't like it or read a book i choose not to comment on it i yeah. i just move on i i got asked um recently i don't tend to review things on the channel but i did get asked recently somebody just sent me un, unannounced uh, uh some swords uh and they were um i won't say who it is but they were poor okay and and i, I I, I didn't want to review them. So I, yeah. so I said, do you want, do you want them back? Because I, I don't review things and I'll only, I'll only promote something if I think it's genuinely good. Right. Uh, I, but I also didn't want the negativity of saying bad things about something. Cause I thought that's course, unfair. Maybe it's fair. I don't know. I had a, I had a bit of a, um, a kind of thought about whether I actually have an obligation to say whether something's bad or not. No, no, I, I, I don't think so. What, what I, my view is um, I will recommend things that are good for my readers, my listeners, my people, right? So mm-hmm. if somebody sends me something and I can't recommend it, and this has happened several times, books, for example, um, I say, look, I'm very sorry, but I don't think that this book will work for my readers, so I'm not going to review it, right? If they have asked me for a review, if I can't give a positive one, I don't give anything, mm-hmm. right? So I only, I only promote good stuff to my people. I don't see it as my job to warn them against the rubbish because there is so much rubbish out there. That's would, true. I would spend my whole time doing nothing else. Yeah, and you can then create a very negative cycle because you know this thing is right. garbage, this book's rubbish, this, and you think I don't want to be spreading the negative message. I'm exactly. trying to spread a positive message of can do, try this. You know, we've all got to practice, whatever it might be. Um, and it, and yeah, constant negging of things it just brings you down as well yourself. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if I, well, as as my. Grandma once said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Mm. I think that's quite advice. Wisdom. Yeah, w- w- wisdom. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I think there is a slight corollary that if there's somebody who you respect and they do something, uh, you don't have to go public with it. But if they ask you for right. private feedback, then I think you should try to give 
constructive feedback. You know, don't just say Absolutely. it's garbage. You know, you say, well, this didn't work for me or this part of the book uh, I found a bit boring or I'm not sure you've got the facts right here, but you maybe need some more research. Um, I think that's an obligation, especially for friends and colleagues. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's a whole other thing. You know, you praise in public and criticize in private. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's like standard sort of, you know, um, decent behavior, I think. Yeah. Um, and also very true for um, historical martial arts instructors too. Like, you know, when a student does something well, you tell everyone. And when they've done something wrong, you take them into the office and have a quiet word. Right. Right. Um, yes. Cause- I, imagine, I imagine in your area, though, you also you get, well, my, my area as well, the sort of um, you know, historical side of it. You get very strongly opinionated people who aren't necessarily, <laughs> um, have, don't have the backup uh to right. to have that opinion um and martial arts in the broadest sense seem to attract people that really really want to be martial artists um but <laughs> but actually aren't uh, yes just a little bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, yeah. and people who are quite happy to tell you that well obviously fury is stupid because you know, he doesn't know anything about swords or how to fight or any of that stuff. I mean, they just named his street in his hometown after him. He just commanded the artillery at Udine. I mean, he doesn't know anything about fighting. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, there's, we have, at one end of the scale, we have imposter syndrome. And at the other end mm. of the scale, we have the Dunning-Kruger syndrome. And I think particularly in martial arts, there's a lot of Dunning-Kruger. People who think mm-hmm. they are really, really good and they're not good enough to realize how bad they are. Mm. Yes. Um, and that is partly because the honest feedback of a smack in the head hasn't mm. been made available to them at the necessary point in their career, <laughs> which which it has been to me. I must say, I've, I've been hit in the head many times when I thought I was better than I was, and it was very useful. Yes, physics. <laughs> physics is a great leveler. You know, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, Do you think there are other areas of human endeavor outside the sort of areas we're familiar with that have a similar? Do you think sort of Formula One drivers? Well, oh God, of course. Yeah, they all do. Of course they do, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, how many. Okay. There's a t shirt I should get um, which says, but you didn't. Right? When, you know, anytime you go around an art gallery and you see some piece of usually modern art and someone goes, oh, I could have painted that in five minutes. But you didn't. Mm. <laughs> right. Yes. It's, yes. it's like, or, or, you know, I've, I've watched, you know, fencing bouts of various kinds of martial arts encounters of various kinds, MMA or whatever. And it's like, he was wide open for a shot to the ribs. Why didn't you take it? Well, actually, having done enough spar, I know that when, when the fists are flying, you may just not see that shot mm. or you may not you may see it, but you may not be in a position to take it, or you may just be distracted by something else or whatever. It's hard. Hmm. And I think I'm not a huge fan of Theodore Roosevelt, but his, his essay man in the arena is, is worth a read. Okay. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. No, no. I'm familiar with some of his comments, but yeah. Um, basically it's about um, the person in the arena actually doing the thing. Right. Is subject to all sorts of, pressures and challenges that the spectators have no idea about. Mm. So it's not a don't criticize. It's more a, um, if you don't know what it's like to be there, you should probably shut the hell up. 
know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are famous boxers who said uh, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face the first time. You know <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, as a friend of mine, he's do a lot of probably still does a lot of door work in Oxford. Uh, hello, Jace, and he um, he once told me that one of the things he did for training uh, when he trained people was was. Mm-hmm teach them to take a punch. How do they behave when they've been hit? He said, because most people don't get punched very much in their life, understandably. And for a lot of people, they do a lot of training until they get hit the first time and then they freeze. Yeah. Or they they do weird stuff. And his opinion was in a street fight, one of the things is you're going to get hit and it's how it's can you shrug that off? Can you does that do anything to you to actually stop your progress towards, in in his case, trying to sort of get drunk people out of the pub? Um, right. uh, and, and I thought it was a really interesting observation. And I I think a certain amount with um, the, the combat mounted combat that I've done. Um, you're riding because you've got a got partner. You've got a dance partner when you're doing mounted combat. Um, your riding needs to be instinctive because you're yeah, yeah. flailing around you've got to take a hit or take a buffet you've got to be able to move that horse without thinking right uh, right rein down left leg on yeah. i've got to you know you you, you can't ha- engage your uh, conscious behavior you need to do it automatically and i imagine footwork is the sort of is the same in your area that you can't stop and go right i better step back with my left foot now because yeah, you're so far behind the action <laughs> Yeah, actually, there's there's an exercise I was taught on a knife fighting course about basically the effects of having been hit or the effects of being having been thrown or whatever, and so you're disoriented. And what we had to do is you you extend your finger like you're pointing, and you wrap your other arm underneath, and then you point at a spot on the ground, and you spin round and round and round and round and round until you're staggering. Mm-hmm. And then while you're staggering about because you're so dizzy. You then had to pull your knife out and hit the target. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, yeah. it's hard. But it's, it's a really useful exercise. It doesn't have to be done with knives. Um, but, you know, you can do it with swords or anything else. But basically, when you are when your brain is disoriented, can you get enough control to mm. make the strike, um, make it actually work? Um, mm. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, I think punching people in the head is maybe not the... I mean, if you have to do it more than a couple of times, it's maybe not the best solution for that kind of training. But this is sort of spinning around thing. It mm. sort of simulates that. It doesn't have the, the shock value, but it has the disorientation value. Yes, I, I think I think training for combat is intrinsically a hard problem. Yeah, <laughs> because, absolutely. Because re- real combat is, is quite different. Uh, so I'm led to believe because I've never been in in what I would call real combat. I have had fights at school and I, and you can argue that jousting is as real as it gets as a martial art, but because you are hitting people and there's no defense. And uh, so perhaps you could argue I have been, but you know, not really. The the, the other guy is not trying to kill you. Well, that's true. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've never been there, but you know, we're social creatures and I think a large part, and again, this, I've never, no one's ever tried to kill me that I'm aware of. um, A large part of the missing piece is, Whatever we're doing in a training environment, nobody is actually trying to kill us. And as social creatures, the thought of somebody actually trying to kill us is a huge part of the problem, mm. right? Like, you know, if, if something happens by accident, then that's a completely different psychological experience to somebody doing it to you deliberately. Yes. So how, 
can you train for that? Or is that what the idea of becoming a veteran means? Is that, you know, seeing the elephant and is that what it means? Yeah. Um, well, the closest I get to it is I have many friends and students and colleagues who are veterans of like actual warfare in the 21st century. Um, and I run stuff by them for training purposes. And if they tell me it's bullshit, I drop it. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, and again, I have no interest in actually acquiring the necessary experience to be an authority on that subject. Like, mm. that's that's way too hardcore for me. Um, yeah. So I'm quite, I'm quite happy to defer to other people's experience on that one. Yeah, because people ask me, you know, occasionally in the comments, well, would you like to be on a medieval battlefield? And my immediate answer is no, in capital letters. Yeah, hell um, no. But, you know, <laughs> like, like, absolutely like, not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, uh, would I be, I would be fascinated and appalled and terrified and, you know, probably traumatized for the rest of my life. Right. So exactly. I, I, yeah. I, I don't think it's something one should want to have happen. If it happened, uh, then one would work out perhaps ways of dealing with it or not. I don't know. You know, you, yeah. you don't know until you encounter these things. But it's interesting, the reality side of training you taught about, because one of the things with horses is, especially with stallions, they're not pretending. Everything no. a stallion does is for real. So if, it, if it's going to bite you, it's going to bite you quite hard. If it's going to kick you, and I've been kicked by many horses, they, they, they don't hold back. They kick no. you really hard and you just have to sort of try and get out of the way. Or my mule, my mule kicked me so hard when I first had him. I turned my back on him and I got proper mule kick and I had, had a dead leg for three days. And it was one of those injuries. It hit me right on the, on the gluteus maximus. And it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a funny injury, but it was quite a serious injury. You know, I was hobbling for three days, but it was also funny the lads working on the castle said what are you doing why are you hobbling like that so just been kicked by a mule and they all laughed um, <laughs> uh, as you have which is fine i'm, I'm fine with that because there's some injuries uh which oh, are just intrinsically funny um yeah. but i stumbled across i was trying to do some research um about you know, sword combat and stuff obviously your stuff is right up there but uh, i also stumbled across this area of martial arts where they uh, debunk martial arts styles yeah and 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 you know there's some grandmaster of no touch kung fu and oh uh, yeah uh, and it's like oh my god there's an old man and it's like it's it's so what are you doing and then somebody has to somebody punches him and he falls over and you think oh, that, that was ne who's who's fooling who there what what's going on you yeah. know but but the reality is there is a lot of garbage in yeah, yeah. even in instructors in in martial arts across the world it, it seems yeah. um, um rory miller wrote an excellent book on this called meditations on violence um where he basically he, he describes the problem in some detail and yeah i mean the real problem is that we don't get to pressure test our interpretations in a way where if we screw it up we're going to die Right. I mean, I've, I've done some things I wouldn't repeat now that I'm a parent to test in interpretations, because if I had, if my interpretation had failed, I might well have been severely injured or killed. Right. But that wow. was long ago and I had to be sure. And so I tested it and it worked. Um, I didn't start with that test. I started with, you know, oh, this seems to work at a nice, slow choreographical pace. Now, does it work a bit faster? Now, does it work a bit faster when he's really trying to hit me because I'm all geared up? And now, does it work at full speed with sharp swords? And now, does it work with an enormous log being swung right. at my head? 
right? Yeah. So, um, but again, I don't think for most historical martial artists that that level of testing the interpretation is even appropriate because the students we're teaching are not depending for their lives on what we're teaching them, right? Yes. It's a bit, yes. it's a bit different when you're teaching a, a survival skill. Hmm. You know, I see what you mean, uh, yeah. Or or a squaddy, teach a squaddy how to shoot and how right. to take cover because there's a there's a finite possibility that they will be in that situation and that will save their lives or, or they'll lose their right. lives. You know? Yeah. And, mm. and like pilot training is similar. I've, I've been um, training to fly small aircraft for a little while and if you make a mistake, a critical mistake at the wrong height, then you're going to die. And the the level of instruction you get is all organized around not dying right, right. It's, yes. and it's really really clear like like there are people who have been killed in completely preventable crashes because at three points during the uh, pre-test uh, pre-flight tests you, mm -hmm. you go through this checklist of these various things you do before you even turn the engine on and then after you turn the engine on and you're trundling about and there's three times you test whether you have um whether your control stick is actually working properly, right? Okay. Right, three times. Because there's a control lock that goes in when the plane is parked and you need to make sure that it's all, you know, the, that you have full and free movement, yeah. right? And people have died because skipping through the checklist, they haven't checked it and they've left the control lock in. And when they're charging down the runway, they can't rotate, they can't pull the stick back. <sighs> And so they end up crashing into the end of the runway and dying. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so, so when you know, you're given a checklist and you go through it step by step by step. And, you know, I've been in the plane when I have skipped a step and my instructor has let me skip the step because it wasn't fatal. Right. Yep. So that I would learn from experience that it is mm -hmm. good to do everything on the checklist. But with my instructor there, he's not going to risk his own life. He's certainly not going to risk mine either. And, and there are ways of letting the student fail that are not critical. Yes. Um, and, and so. But allowing them to fail, but you allow them to fail and have the emotional response to, I really caught right. up really badly. Yeah. 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 And, and one instructor of mine, um, when I've made a particular like mistake when flying or whatever, or, or, or we've just discussed something that could go wrong and he's shown me the recovery procedures and, you know, basically 90% of, flying um is not get lost and the other nine percent of the rest is what to do when your engine catches fire and then one percent is normal flight <laughs> right but um but so he will send me um air crash reports for when this thing we discussed when you do it wrong this is what happens and you know these three people died because they did this wow yeah. Right, because because they flew into cloud without being certified on instruments, mm. for instance. Right, right. Um, so I've I've been using the flying training to get this kind of perspective in how you teach something where the consequences of a simple mistake is you die. Mm. Right, and it's been it's been fascinating. I mean, I love the flying anyway, but but just that aspect of it of okay, this is a skill which will keep you alive, and if you make a mistake then you are likely to die. In these circumstances, you can make this mistake up here, but you can't do it over there, <laughs> right? 
yeah. It's 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 yeah. It, it, it's scary as hell, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, you have to like heights as well, I suppose. If you're no, I, I'm 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 scared of heights. Are you? Why are yeah. you flying then? Because I'm scared of heights, and it's great uh, to you know. Like I also go rock climbing because right, so I'm pushing absolutely... yourself out of your comfort zone. Right, right cause, again, because there aren't very many sword situations that mm. are truly frightening, and it's because I'm the person creating the sword environment. I know what's you know yeah. what the parameters are. I can keep it reasonably safe. So it's actually difficult to get properly scared in a sword situation, but mm. I need to be able to deal with mortal terror and remain calm and act in a reasonable fashion. Mm. Right. And so flying is good for that. Climbing is good for that. Um, and it gives me also gives me insight into how to help the students who are really frightened of swords, but are still really attracted to them. Right. I see what you mean. Yes. I suppose both of us are so familiar with them as a, as a tool. Yeah. That the idea of being frightened by a big, sharp piece of steel is, is being, almost unfamiliar being, to us. Oh, yeah. being swung at you by somebody. Yes. Right? Is it, yes. Yeah. No, and people aren't usually frightened of the sword on a wall, but when it's swung at your head, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it should be at least a little bit scary, but it often isn't because it's, I've had swords swung at my head thousands and thousands and thousands of times and it's always been fine. Mm. You know? What's the what's the um, most difficult uh, problem you've had to deal with with a sort of total newbie? Is it somebody holding the sword or just not even wanting to get close enough to the other person? Or? Honestly, the the biggest challenge is by far come from people who are big and strong and malicious. Oh, right, interesting. So, so some people will show up to a class because they want to show you up, or they'll show up to a class because they want to bully other students. I mean, that's right. not their conscious. You know, that, that's usually an unconscious motivator. But mm. the way they behave in class makes them dangerous to others, either physically or psychologically or both. Okay. And heading that off before it happens is the best thing. And that's a question of culture. Um, but also dealing with it when it occurs, it can be really difficult because they they can dress up what they're doing as well, I'm just doing the drill. Mm. Um, right. Now, I know you're on a slightly tight sh schedule and <laughs> we haven't really talked about your book yet. So we need to kind of dash. Okay, we, yeah, you, can, you, can always, you can always come back on and we can talk about other yeah. things later. All right, but <laughs> okay, we do need to talk about your book. Um, so how does the knightly code of chivalry square with running a business? What's the relationship? How does that work? It's a, it's a, it's about ethics. Um, really, the heart of the book is a is a thing on ethics in business. And one of the problems with the media's portrayal of business is that often, you know, billionaires and uh, successful business people are portrayed as the baddies. You know, often it's the corporate entity that is trying to destroy the world. And I think that's actually quite often true but it, yes. <laughs> it is not but it's not but it's not exclusively true there are very ethical businesses there are people that will turn a, a an unethical deal down including myself um because it's not worth doing um i and i i want to try to help people understand how i run a business and see whether they can get any value out of, uh, of doing the same sort of thing uh and so you know for example as simple as paying people 
on time or even early. I know that sounds trivial, but lots of people spend a lot of energy. The, the economy spends a lot of energy chasing legitimate payments and trying to get them. Right. And so if you can afford to pay people for the job they've done and pay them early, they can then pay their people. They've got to pay early. Yeah. Um, and the money circulates faster. And apparently there's this thing in economics called the velocity of money. And so unless the money gets put into savings accounts somewhere, most people are spending the money you pay them on living. And so yeah. that money goes to somebody else and it circulates. So money money is taken out of the economy by very wealthy people putting it into investments because the money doesn't keep flowing. But ordinary people paying for services, paying for food, paying for lodgings, whatever it might be, that money circulates and keeps the economy going. So I'm, I'm a great believer in, in, if you can, paying people on time or early, especially yeah. smaller scale people. You know, if British Gas gets paid in 30 days, I'm fine with that, you know. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, um, if I was to buy a sword from a sword maker, I'd try and, I'd try and pay for it by return. You know, yeah, especially absolutely. if I trust them, because that's that because they can then deal with that money and and things like planning for the long term as well. Business businesses often, especially public businesses and massive companies, are run on a quarterly basis, and doing anything in three months successfully, you know, training, trying to trying to get better at, at fighting in three months is going to be difficult. You can probably improve, yeah. but you're not going to be a master at it. And I'm concerned that this short term thinking is often uh, to the detriment of medium to long-term success of a business. So right. at Rebellion, we've always thought, you know, do we want, where do we want to be in 10 years? Where do we want to be in five years? If we do X, is that going to further the long-term ambition of the company? And if it isn't, we won't do it. Um, right. Is this an ethical, you know, a, an ethical area of business to be in? So um, a lot of people are talking about the death of uh, NFTs at the moment and how everybody saw that they were dod <laughs> That was dodgy. such a bubble. I stayed yeah. the hell out of that one. <laughs> well, people are going, who would have known? It's like everybody knew at the beginning and everybody knew in the middle and everybody knew at the end. Um, now, there is some value in the sort of algorithms used for data security. So there's, there's, there's definitely an underlying value in some of the technology, but the whole buying something and having a certificate to say you own it and then trading that is, 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 you know, is short term. That's what yeah. I'm saying is short term and, and unwise, but a lot of people made a lot of money because they got in early and then and got, got out, out early. early. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and so really success in that kind of, uh, bubble market is about timing. Yeah. Um, I, uh, and I talk a little bit about timing um, and timing in combat is an important component of it. You know, sure. The same move done too late. It's it's, not, yeah, no, use it's to at all. no use at all. And, and so business is like that. And it's really hard to judge the timing. Uh, but but I talk about um, trying to be wise. Think of the long term value of your company uh, and what it what you're trying to achieve. Um, and if you go on, I, I often use the term quest as well. So, right. A quest doesn't have to be looking for the Holy Grail. We all know those classic quests. Those great quests are written down in literature. But a quest can just be improving your health, getting a better job, uh, being more, you know, writing a book. These are all kind of personal quests. And if you, as we said earlier, if you break it down into smaller steps, you, know, you don't just you don't just put your armor on, get on your horse, and go and find the Holy Grail. You have to mm. go to a mystical abbey. You have to go to a lake. You have to find a, an old person who tells you a 
clue to get through the caves of despair or whatever it might be you know these things always have a series of 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 tasks to achieve before you achieve the big thing and i and i liken sort of personal development to that as well in that you can't just get healthier you know there's a series of steps You, you you eat eat a little more healthily do you take vitamins and minerals do you exercise a little bit more you know you won't suddenly one day wake up and be a really good rider or a really good fighter you 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 may start a bit better than some people but you still got to train everybody has yeah. to train and, and it's incremental progress yes. yeah and incidentally that ties into what we were saying about writing fiction starting with the last chapter if you go on a quest you have a goal the goal is mm. the last chapter yep yeah that's yeah? very true so yeah, think absolutely. of it that way yes um, and I, I took a little bit about business planning as well is um and spreadsheets are dead easy to do and everybody's business spreadsheet always goes up in a nice exponential curve and everybody's very happy reality is not like that everything takes probably twice as long as you think mm-hmm. uh, certainly a lot longer than you thought it would take when you started on the journey um and i think optimism plays its part optimism balanced with realism um is is, is a valuable task but some things are worth taking time over Uh, And that's what I talk about. And then I talk a little bit about things like moderation and people get very confused about what moderation means. And I don't mean don't drink wine. I mean, don't drink too much wine to the point that you fall over and your liver fails. You know, there's a there's a there's a balance and it's a very personal choice about where you sit on that spectrum. Um, you know, I will, I, I like a nice glass of wine occasionally. I used to drink a lot more these days because I've got a family and horses and I'm so blooming busy. I almost don't have time to drink the booze. <laughs> uh, literally, yeah. that, that's, that's my excuse. It's not that I don't want to. It's just like, it's 10 o'clock. I've just finished feeding the horses. I'm really knackered. I need to eat now. <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so your lifestyle can get in the way. So, so, so I talk about prudence and, and yeah, some of it, bravery how does how does bravery work because most of us are not going to be on the battlefield in armor with a sword and a horse and what does bravery mean well bravery mean can mean confronting your your own personal demons your own challenges you talked about bravery you talked about uh, your fear of heights and flying mm. and climbing directly addressing yeah. a thing that you don't really want to be doing which is going up high <laughs> You know, well, that is brave. That is bravery. Because if you didn't have a fear of heights, climbing wouldn't be the same challenge because you right. just go, who cares? I'm just I just like climbing. I have no fear of falling. OK. Uh, and there are people like that. There are people that, that don't seem to have fear of these kind of things. But um, uh, yeah, I my friend Ross's kid, Zach, is an amazing climber. He's like 12, but he will climb stuff that I can't even approach because yeah. he is He's very, very brave, and also he's smaller, which kind of helps with the mass-to-strength ratio. But it's mostly, honestly, he's just a lot braver than I am. He is not, well, he's a lot Mm. less fearful than I am. He is not frightened of falling at all. And so I I, I talk about bravery. Is it brave if you don't even, it's not brave if you don't even know there's a threat, or you don't even Mm. know that you don't be doing something. It's just your your job you know it's what you do yeah. and so i talk about bravery how does that map across to business and sometimes that can, that can mean literally starting a business for the first time you know the the, the first yeah. step as tolkien says you know careful where you you know your first step outside your threshold might take you on a really long journey um <laughs> and and he's right you know the uh, first uh, a journey of a thousand miles is begins with the first step um, and businesses like that most businesses never get started and right. the hardest thing is actually deciding, not coming up with the idea, 
I mean, coming up with a good idea is hard, but the idea itself isn't the hard bit. The, 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 the hard bit is going, great, I've got an idea. Now what do I do to fulfill this idea? How do I, how do I make a training book on swords? How do I write a book on chivalry and how it applies to modern, you know, modern business life? Um, because if you start, you can fail. If you never start, you're never going to fail. fail. Yeah. You won't succeed either, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But some people are more afraid of failing than they are of mm. um, of pretty much anything else. And that's, that's one of the things that we have to do in training is you've got to give the student opportunities to fail in a way that isn't fatal. Same with parenting. Like parenting mm. is all about letting the kids fail so they can learn, but making mm. sure that the failure is safe. So, you know, when your child is learning to walk, you don't like wrap them up with cushions and stuff and hope they don't hurt themselves. You just let them walk and they fall and sometimes they cry and that's fine. You just make sure that they're not staggering about next to a pit of crocodiles. Yes. That, yes, that would be absolutely. wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Because personal experience is so important. You know, telling a kid that a candle is hot and is going to burn them is important. And then if they want to touch it, fine, touch it, you yeah. know, and then and then learn. Ouch! It hurts. Yes, but, we told but you, you don't. Now you but know. You don't, yeah, but you don't give them a lit candle and let them go play near the curtains. Correct. Exactly right. <laughs> yes, yes. You control the exposure to the threat, Precisely. so that you get the personal knowledge the, and the personal emotional feedback, which is so important to us. And you've also got to expand people's horizons. Um, we, we, it's funny, it's interesting, because in games design, which is another area, of, we haven't really talked about it, but I'm very involved in games design for our games. And one of the games we're working on at the moment involves exploring. And I said to the lead games designer, the first three places you explore in this game, there's nothing to find. You've effectively trained the player that there's no point exploring in this game. Right. Because they've done what they think they should do, go and explore those ruins. There's nothing to find. They've gone, oh, well, maybe that's just random. We've gone to the next one, nothing to find. Gone to the third one, nothing to find. You've literally told them these are just decoration. You need to put rewards in all three of those places. Uh, and then subsequently, you can you can um, yeah, you, know, you can uh, ration it out over the game because yeah. you've got to train them that we want them to explore this game um, and not the other way around. Yeah, it's the same when demonstrating with martial arts. When if your student hits you, you must when you're demonstrating, you must praise them because the whole point of martial arts is you get good at hitting and not getting hit. So if your student hits you, that is always a good shot, well done. We're not quite doing the drill like, like this way. I want them to see something slightly different. So could we do it like this? Right. Right. Always well done. Good shot. Because if you, if you punish them for doing the thing that you're supposed to do in martial arts, <laughs> what they learn is you're not supposed to hit. Right. Which yes. is. Yeah, um, and and they learn they learn it at a very deep level sometimes as well because they don't even know they haven't consciously decided oh I'm not supposed to hit they just think hmm I'm not yeah, I I I was I was punished for that therefore I won't do it again so so my final question Jason um, you've acted on the thing you were supposed you you said you wanted to act on on in the last interview so clearly this is it's a good question to ask what is next. What is the next best idea you haven't acted on? Right. I am going to try to write some fiction. Okay. Um, I'll hold you I, to it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think it's very useful to, to know you're now under social pressure to get something <laughs> delivered. Um, now, I'm going to have a go at doing some fiction. I, I've got a, um, I'd like to do a cookbook. Some of my videos on medieval cooking uh, have been very successful, and it strikes me that there's an area that's very entertaining to look into. Um, sure. Especially, especially somebody who doesn't consider themselves to be a particularly skillful cook. I can cook, but uh, you know, I don't 
qualify myself as a, as a cook. Um, yeah. I think that would be quite a fun area to explore. Um, I've got tons more videos to do. I'm, I'm doing one at the moment about uh, medieval food. Uh, and okay. uh, some, some of it sounds delightful and some of it sounds truly awful. So that should be quite <laughs> an interesting video coming up. Um, yeah, so fiction. I think, uh, I think I'll try some it, – it'll be quasi-medieval, but I don't think I necessarily want to go down the historical route. Okay. But I might veer into uh, – I feel like fantasy is an okay. area that I'd be quite comfortable with because I've always loved the idea of dragons and wizards existing. And, yep. of course, they can exist in fiction. Excellent. Okay, so let me just remind you what Yoda said: "Do or don't do. There is no try." So, so you're going to you're going to do some fiction. Excellent. Yes, I am. And, exactly. and then I, and then you'll come straight back on the show to tell us all about it. I will do absolutely. Probably won't be a few few months yet, uh, so people won't hear me. <laughs> but um, a good few months, possibly try to get most of it done over the Christmas. You know, okay. as as the as the evenings draw in, and as I've got less time to be out and about in the landscape, and it gets muddier and colder. Uh, then I'll probably retreat into uh, into writing a little bit more. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. It's been lovely talking to you again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them I would have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Sally Pointer, who is a freelance heritage educator, archaeologist, and presenter of traditional skills and historic crafts. So we discuss things like uh, ancient ways of making makeup and various sort of crafty skills and way, all sorts of different kinds of mud you might find useful. She is an author and an experimental archaeology MSc student at Exeter University and a veteran hedge botherer. And if you want to know what a hedge botherer is, you're just going to have to tune in to the show. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. Most importantly, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next time.